Hello, this is Cracking Charity Chat and I am Beth Crackles. This episode was recorded in late February 2020 before the sector and all of our worlds were rocked by coronavirus. This is not the place to be if you need to get an emergency appeal out of the door, but it is the place to be if you want a natter with Nathan Sparling, Chief Exec of HIV Scotland. His journey to become Chief Executive is unique to say the least. In this episode, we chat about being a young Chief Exec, developing a strategic plan and turning around an organisation that was about to close, and how being a drag artist for 10 years has influenced his work. I hope you enjoy it. Having me in your office. It's a pleasure. It's not many people have been in this office. It's only been a couple of months. Because it's difficult to get to. No, just because it's only Cause of all the stairs. Well, yeah, it feels it's... like I might not get out unless I'm ex- escorted. It is a back sort of basement <laughs> office, but I only moved in in December. It's nice, nice comfy mm. chairs. Not what I was expecting, if I'm honest. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, thank you for being with me today. It's very kind of you to give up some time. We're going to talk a bit about you being chief exec mm-hmm. of HIV Scotland, being under thirty, yep. which is fantastic and frustrating <laughs> at the same time. I get that a lot. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and a bit about how you a have done it and b how you manage some of the challenges which I mm. guess are presented around that. And it would be inappropriate of me not to mention Nancy Clench as well if you're happy to talk about that always can we start a bit with a bit Mm. about your background um because you've got a pretty interesting background being a parliamentary assistant yes I mean I usually started when I'm I was 13 which is when I think I got interested in politics and my parents hated it there'd been like a handmade leaflet put through the door from someone that lives a couple of doors along who wanted to stop a mobile phone mast being erected outside our row of houses. And I took it as my duty to join the campaign. (laughs) So I was walking about the streets of Glenrothes with a petition, knocking on doors, asking people to sign the petition. I think we got something like 350 signatures and three, it was three the um, mobile that were had put the planning application in, they withdrew it. Oh, they withdrew nice. the planning application and I was front page of the local paper. Amazing. Good early <laughs> success gave you yeah. high aspirations. Um, and now when I look back and think that that was what got me involved in politics, I'm really ashamed of myself because when you can't get mobile signal, it's kind of my fault. so that sort of got me involved in politics and then the same woman who had put this handmade leaflet through the letterbox had then invited me to join the community council at like 13 14 and when I was 15 I was uh, nominated to be the chair of the community council and my mum grounded me on the days of all the meetings because she said my schoolwork was more important so now When my mum's like, oh, I'm really proud of you, I tell her, I think I could have got there quicker (laughs) if I'd have been able to be the chair of the community council when I was 15. Um, But she said exams were more important and I left school after fifth year with enough grades to get into university. My grandparents said, because I could switch on a computer, they thought that meant I needed to be a computer technician and earn lots of money. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, but I don't like my skills on being able to, you know, use Microsoft Word <laughs> and amaze them with how to make things bold or increase the font size doesn't really go down into, you know, the nitty gritty of how computers work. So I went and did interactive media design, which was like a new course at the time. But they made me do life drawing, what? which wasn't kind of how I was sold the course. <laughs> Sounds like you were stitched up. Yeah. So in first year, they have to level people's art skills with computer skills. So some people had gone to the course because they were good artists, and some people had gone to the course because they were good on like Microsoft Paint. And and yeah, I was doing life drawing, and I was like, "What is my life? This is not what I want to do." And I dropped out. Well, I dropped out because I was involved in a robbery. I was the only person in the building. I was beaten up and left for dead by six people. And uh, I was in Hall's residence, so I just didn't want to be there anymore. And uh, that was why I dropped out. So then I moved back to my parents and they were like, right, well, what are you going to do? <laughs> I was like, give me some time. <laughs> um, and then, well, I actually didn't think I'd go back to university after that because that was like quite traumatising. And then my best friend died and I needed to do something to just get out. So I was watching Tea in the Park and I was like, I want to do that. Like, I want to make that happen. So I went and studied festival events management at Napier. And in the end, I hated that too. So I dropped out. I've never been an academic person. <laughs> but it was from being at university that got me involved in like student politics. And that sort of got my interest in some campaigning. And it was around the time of the equal marriage campaign in Scotland. Mm -hmm. So I was helping lead the campaign from a student perspective for that, which was the biggest ever consultation response that the Scottish government's ever had to any other consultations. And that sort of got me involved in politics. And then when I stopped doing student politics and wanted an actual job. The chief executive of HV Scotland at the time was looking for some cover to do some short projects and I ended up working here for three months. Um, so that was like 2009, 2010. And after that, I went and met with a couple of MSPs and I was like, give me a job. So I started working one day a week in Parliament and I did an FOI to the UK government about their contract with Atos to deliver some of the disability assessments and whoever it was that sent the FOI to me probably isn't in a job anymore because they'd PDF'd a Word document that they'd put black boxes over so when I un-PDF'd it I deleted the black boxes and all this really confidential information was there so it was like front page of the daily record for a few weeks. Oh my goodness. <laughs> and um, and yeah so that cemented my interest in politics but also the fact that I seemed to find something I was actually quite good at. I worked, so I worked in the Scottish Parliament for quite a while. I worked with loads of different MSPs and in different areas and then the referendum on Scottish independence happened and I was campaigning for a yes vote and then that obviously didn't happen and I used that as an opportunity to leave <laughs> and I moved to London on a whim to become a full-time drag queen rather than just doing drag for a bit. I'd just done an Edinburgh Fringe show that year, actually, and then I took that show on tour in London. I did something like 10 shows in five days, and it went really well, so everyone was like, why don't you move to London? Because now that you've worked in all these places, then you'll get booked again. I literally remember on the train back from London after that week, 
putting in the notice that I was leaving my flat that I rented and also emailing my boss to say that I was going to leave for London in a month. I was a full-time drag queen for eight months and that meant just taking whatever work you could. Yeah. Like if it was 50 quid or 300 quid, you would do it yeah. just because you needed to put food on the table yeah. and pay your rent. And thankfully, there was an election and the SNP got way more seats than they were expecting and they had to scale up their staff team. So my full-time drag career was thankfully cut short and I got a decent paying job <laughs> eight months into living in London and three years later, I moved back to be the head of policy at HV Scotland. Okay. So it's like full circle in my working yeah. life. Yeah, and so when did you move to become chief exec? Uh, November 2018. Okay. So it's been a year and four months yeah. so far. Yeah. Yeah. Very interesting background. <laughs> <laughs> so how has politics mm. influenced your charity work? I think I've always had, one, an interest, but two, I think having worked in there and knowing how to get things done, that helps with then the approach that we use in campaigning for different issues. One of the key things was February 2018, HV Scotland was not successful in our bid for funding mm -hmm. from the government. And that meant we were going from receiving £270,000 a year, which is what we'd received for the past 24 years, to receiving nothing. And given that that accounted for about 95% of our funding, it was quite a... Mm -hmm sort of do or die situation and I think because of not only then my links into parliament but also knowing how politics works and what is the thing that will make that change that helped in order for us to make an argument that we at least needed to not shut down and the government should give us some time to adapt our funding model so that we could still exist and thankfully they did we're now in, heading into our third year of that funding which comes to an end at the end of 2021 and that will has already shifted one what we do and two how we get funding because the government funding is now only something like 40 percent of what we what we get oh, that's amazing. So we've, we, it was a massive shift but it had to happen very quickly it gave me heart in knowing that other people wanted to fund us which yeah. made me more keen to make it a success because you know, you do think if the government are not willing to fund this organisation, why is that? And I think there was some issues about what it was that we did. In what sense? I think the model that we got into was doing some really good policy and research work, but then the output of that was telling people that they weren't doing their job right. Mm. That's like in a nutshell, what yeah. I, how I would say it in sort of like a sentence. And ultimately telling people they're doing something wrong doesn't, elicit the sort of collaboration and partnerships that you need mm -hmm. in this sector. And I think that just led to relationship breakdowns and people not wanting to work with us. And thankfully, we've sort of completely changed what we do. We now, yes, do that really good research work, but the bit that was missing was what is our role in coming up with a solution? So rather than just saying, you need to do better, it's about saying, right, We've seen these problems, now what can we do 
as a sector, so if it's the HIV sector, sexual health or, or wider, mm -hmm. what do we do to solve these problems? And actually, it's that bringing people together and sort of workshopping the issues and the solutions that I think we're seen as doing a bit better on now than we were necessarily before. Mm -hmm. Then coming up with some great campaigns. So there's a pledge board down there that was about getting to zero that we worked on with Waverley Care. And so we went into Parliament with that pledge board and got like 20 MSPs to sign sign up to the pledge within an hour um, just by having that sort of partnership work because you can't live without that in the third sector. So is this about your 2019 to 30 strategy? Yes. Yeah. Do you so, want to just briefly explain that? So when I took over, one of the key things was we were working without a strategic plan and because we needed to also come up with a fundraising strategy, it was quite clear that we needed a new strategic plan. In the process of sort of working on it and developing it, we went and held five workshops across Scotland with myself and the board, and then we did an online consultation and um, we then worked on what the strategy could be. And one of the things globally in the HIV movement has been around these global targets for getting to zero new transmissions by 2030, but no one was really talking about that in Scotland. The government hadn't signed up to that sort of pledge um, but the English government had and so we, we took the decision that actually our strategic plan should be that that's the goal that we want to reach and we want to get support for and what are all the things that we can do as an organisation to help push towards that and support the movement of the whole country to get there. Um, so we were the first organisation in March 2019 to come out with that and rather than it being like our strategic plan, it was what we said was our plan for the country and what needed to happen. And it was an 11-year strategy when we brought it out. And uniquely saying, actually, if we reach these goals, would an organisation like HV Scotland have to exist by 2030? Mm -hmm. And is this then our strategic plan, almost like this is our closure plan. If we meet these targets, then HV Scotland doesn't need to exist. Mm -hmm. Mm, interesting. I guess the ideology is that we all do such amazing work that these problems don't exist, but to articulate that as a, as your goal yeah. is quite interesting. With something like HIV where, one, we hope that there will be a cure at some point and there's a need to then make sure that everyone gets access to that. Two, if HIV isn't the most stigmatised health condition and people can access health services like everyone else and then HIV is not passed on, then what is, what is the need for us? And mm. articulating that is also a good driver in that now we're 10 years to go. I think it's a good driver for fundraising as well in that it's, it's the countdown to where we need to get to. Mm. So the funding cuts were mm. around 2018. From what I've read, that was against the backdrop of rising HIV infections. Yeah. In relation to the strategic plan of getting to zero, mm. that's quite ambitious, isn't it? Yeah. To go from being like, right, actually, we'll just turn the organisation round and we'll just solve this. <laughs> so have you had pushback about around, like, is that too ambitious? Is that mm. unrealistic? Or are people like, yeah, let's do this? No, I think we needed to do something ambitious. We needed to rapidly change how we appeared to the public as an organisation. I mean, even still to this day, I get people that don't know what HIV Scotland is or what HIV Scotland does. People living with HIV were telling me when I was doing the strategic plan that they never heard of us before. So that was a major concern. Not only were we published a new strategic plan, but we published our new branding and our new website. 
all to sort of be this more public facing organisation that wasn't sat in so-called ivory basement in Edinburgh. Scotland sort of needed someone to come to the table with this plan. And actually, I don't think it did get as much backlash as I expected it to. Whilst it's ambitious, it's seen as achievable. I mean, it's a global goal, so it's not just we're not just talking about the Western world here. So when you put it in a global perspective, it, it needs to be achievable in the UK in order for it to be achievable worldwide. Yeah. So I, I was, yeah, I was a bit heartened with that. The government still haven't backed getting to zero yet, but I think we're in the process of them coming up with the new action plan around HIV and sexual health and hepatitis. So that should hopefully be the time that they come out and say, mm. this is this is our goal. But other, I mean, Waverly Care backed it when we worked on our World AIDS Day campaign last year. The HIV Clinical Leads Group, which is all of the clinical leads from each health board in Scotland, they've now put zero getting to zero as one of their top priorities mm-hmm. um, in their sort of strategic goals for for the future. So when you've got then sort of people coming behind this as a as a shared common goal, I think that was important was that we weren't trying to make it all about us and we're going to get to zero. We're going yeah. to get Scotland to zero. It was about saying this is our vision for what a country should should look like and should do and that it needs other people so our campaign this year is called generation zero and it sort of came from reflecting on a new decade and what that means and what it could bring and then the fact that our goal is zero by 2030 so that means we've got 10 years to do it and then putting aside all the generational labels that sometimes divide our society like i get called a millennial because apparently i am but i don't like it. Um, it has such negative connotations. It just and, um, makes me think of avocados. <laughs> yes. Literally, all I think about. Can you, you can use Facebook and you might eat avocados. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and you should. Yeah, you shouldn't buy sandwiches from Pret because that's why you can't save up for a deposit. Um, <laughs> so bring breaking down all those generational barriers and saying actually everyone that is alive right now can play their part in getting to to zero by twenty thirty. So let's not make ourselves divided by these generational levels and let's labels and let's think about what actually is possible and we've never been able to talk about eradicating a virus and smallpox in the 70s so it's a pretty big deal for anyone that wants to be involved in that kind of thing yeah so you've got some really good form with your campaigning should we talk about one or two examples so the first the first hiv positive pilot Mm. and um, PrEP as well, which yeah. I see you've got an award there. Yeah, so HV Scotland won the Cracking Campaign Award at the Scottish Charity Awards. and So PrEP was unfortunately not something that I was too involved in um, because Scotland um, got access to PrEP in... I think the decision was made in April 2017 and then it came on the market in the same month that I started at HV Scotland. It was really the organisation's child was PrEP. I think the conversation started in 2012 when the first sort of trials around PrEP were showing how effective it was at preventing HIV. It took five years for us to go from seeing it being effective to actually being available on the NHS in Scotland. And now we've seen some over three and a half thousand people um, on PrEP in Scotland preventing new transmissions, seen a big reduction, I think, around 20% in, of transmissions among gay and bisexual men who 
unfortunately, are the only people that are benefiting from PrEP at the moment. So there's, mm. out of the, those 3,500, I think 26 might be women. So there's a massive amount of work that needs done still um, around improving access to PrEP. But the fact it's there and it's a tool that's preventing HIV is obviously an amazing, amazing piece of work. Yeah, yeah. And what about the first HIV-positive pilot? I didn't really understand... It's really naive. No, I didn't really understand the issue. I didn't either, and became an expert in aviation law. So basically, we had someone who wanted to train as a pilot come to the office and say that they were refused their medical certificate because they were HIV positive. And it came down to a very specific bit of aviation regulation. Um, So when you get your medical certificate, you can get a clear medical and then if you do have something that poses a problem or a risk, mainly of neurocognitive impairment, then you would get what's called an operational multi-crew limitation, which meant you could only fly if it was a multi-crew, so you couldn't fly a commercial plane on your own. Now, in order to train to be a pilot, you have to have a medical license that's clear of these limitations. So it prevented James from training to be a commercial pilot, despite having a private pilot's license and been flying like most of his life. So he was a bit miffed by that and came to us and said, I don't think this is right. And ultimately, if you were trained as a pilot already and then became HV positive, you could continue to be a pilot. So it was a bit silly. And essentially, when you looked into it, it was down to the fact that this European Aviation Safety Agency was using research that's about 10 years out of date now, but it was also on a cohort of people that weren't on medication. It was an out-of-date system, essentially, that um, needed to change. It was one of the first campaigns that I took on when I was here as the head of policy and campaigning. And I don't think we expected it to be as big a thing. We worked with a good friend of mine, Patrick Strudwick, who writes for BuzzFeed to get the story out there. And that story went worldwide from day one. We managed to get support from the National Gay Pilots Association in America, who have to work all the time at arguing for people living with HIV to train as pilots. They'd given us loads of research that they've done that helped with their arguments. And Bob Doris, who's an MSP for in Glasgow, he asked a question to the First Minister and said, did she think it was unacceptable? And she said it was and wrote to the Civil Aviation Agency in the UK. And then a question was asked in Westminster. And that was when the Secretary of State for Transport, who's ultimately responsible, said that it was going to change. And that happened in, in a couple of months. And I think because it got such good coverage in the media. And, you know, it's interesting, You, especially now you go on Twitter and see a lot of vitriol and hate around debates around trans rights, and th- then that brings in things like PrEP. So people are talking about how PrEP shouldn't be funded by the NHS anymore, and it's thinly veiled homophobia. But with this case, there was none of that. Everyone was quite supportive and didn't understand why in this day and age people living with HIV couldn't fly a plane. So we started the campaign in November and by January it had changed. That's amazing. And then 
James had to train to be a pilot, so it took <laughs> that. That was the longest bit of the <laughs> the longest bit, but he did. Um, and we just we worked with him last month, uh, which was the two year anniversary of of the rules changing. He did the whole campaign under an alias as Pilot Anthony because the stigma around HIV is so prevalent, and he didn't want to risk employment opportunities or anything in the future mm -hmm. that goes to show what the level of stigma that exists yeah. is around HIV and the fear that people have on how they'll be treated differently but then when he got a job he flies with the Scottish airline Loganair he went and met with the managing director there and said that this is what he wanted to do and they were really supportive and their PR agency gave him a lot of support in order to sort of shape the message of a pilot and we were supporting him on HIV stuff. And we did a whole campaign really around the fact that it was him and he got pictures on the tarmac next to one of the, the planes. And um, that story went everywhere again. There's um, articles in China and the Spanish Senate voted on a motion in order to make sure that it didn't happen there. Collaboration is something that comes through really strongly with mm. basically everything that you've said so far. Being a small charity, you seem to punch above your weight mm -hmm. consistently. Yeah. So collaboration is obviously sort of integral to mm -hmm. that. But what else is it? Yeah, I think it's knowing our way around government, knowing our way around the press. I think that helps us punch above our weight. Knowing what it is that we don't do particularly well and being able to work with other organisations in order to fill those gaps. And I came to that realisation quite recently, actually, that one, it was something that we were already doing, but two, that we then we didn't need to improve on those things that other organisations do well. I would talk about saying, oh, we need to do better to reach this group of people or we need to do better at this. And then <laughs> actually realising that that's the value of collaboration is that we don't need to necessarily get any bigger or do better at those things. We just need to strengthen those links and improve those links with other organisations. And I think, yes, we're seen as being quite an effective mouthpiece for the whole sector um, because we're the people that the press come to as well because we've been able to shape a narrative that works well in the press, but also that then we work and adapt with them. So, you know, last week there was news about a HIV test that's being used now to try and curb the outbreak of HIV among people who use drugs. So that test is an instant test that's used now on the streets of Glasgow when they meet people, rather than taking a blood sample away and it being tested and it takes two weeks and then going back to try and find that person and not being able to by the nature of the fact that they're homeless people who use drugs. So that was big news and it was us that the press come to to get a bit of that sort of perspective of what that'll do for HIV, how the tests work. And I think being experts in our area and around policy is what then makes people come to us. I think we're a bit ambitious and a bit creative in the way that we want to get our message across. And it's about trying to step outside the natural boxes of what a charity does mm. and say, right, let's get this message in front of everyone in Scotland because that's what needs to happen. Mm. It feels like you've normalised the issue mm. a bit as well. One of my uh, idols, uh, Panty Bliss, who's a drag queen from Dublin, who 
rose to prominence when she made a speech about gay marriage in a theatre in Dublin. She then was very vocal about living with HIV and she talks about how, if you look back 50 years, homophobia was so prevalent in society because no one had met an openly gay person Mm -hmm. because it was criminalised and it was um, a shameful thing. And then as people started to come out, you know, your gran might know our hairdresser who's gay or... Um, her next door neighbour who's gay and that normalised LGBT communities and now there's certainly not as much homophobia prevalent as as there was back then and I think that's the sort of model that we have to use in order to to challenge that stigma is that people living with HIV are just like the rest of us they're carers or teachers or nurses so it is a conscious decision to put those faces where we can on what HIV looks like and I think Gareth Thomas was probably the the biggest thing that has happened to the HIV movement in in the UK anyway in recent years was and very similarly to the pilot in that it's someone that's doing a job that people respect and appreciate and showing people that it can happen to anyone or that HIV doesn't discriminate on the basis of who you are or what you do that's what's important HIV is not a shameful thing or it shouldn't be a shameful thing and the stigma that surrounds HIV is simply because when HIV when the outbreak started it was a thing that happened to gay people and then in Edinburgh it happened to people who use drugs, but nobody quite knew how. At the start of HIV, it was called GRIDS, the Gay-Related Immune Deficiency Syndrome. And it was because it was just gay men that were being seen with, with HIV. So that stigma still prevalent. Mm. And putting faces and different faces to HIV is really, I think, important. The challenge with that is that not everyone is able to be very vocal about it because of the stigma that exists. So a lot of women um, will not want HIV to impact on their life or the stigma that they receive if they're pregnant and all lots of different things where we've got to recognise the almost the privilege that white gay men have in order to speak about HIV, use that to our advantage as an organisation and that people are willing to speak about it, but also recognise what the difficulties can be for some people. Thankfully, I think we have a chair of the board who is a woman living with HIV, but she's not the chair of the board because she's a woman living with HIV. She's the chair of the board because she's got decades of experience chairing other boards as a professor of criminology. But having that perspective helps shape the organisation's yeah, work as well. Sure. Thank you. This is all really fascinating to me. Should we talk quickly about the Young Leaders Network? Sure. Which you've been involved with setting up? Yes, I mean, this came about because as a 28-year-old chief executive, not having any other real friends that were chief executives because I was (laughs) 28, (laughs) Um, but going to events, so there's, fun enough, in our building now, um, the Association of Chief Officers of Scottish Voluntary Organisations, or Mm, a COSVO as they're known, Um, and I became a member um, and went to some of their events, and it's quite fascinating that, yes, a lot of the people in the room are much older, usually male, and because of being much older, they have years of experience and you could see people sort of 
reflecting on that experience and for me as someone that didn't have much management experience didn't have any of the kinds of experience that these people were coming to the table with it was quite daunting and trying to work out how to overcome challenges in a group of people who I wouldn't consider my peers on the basis that they're not facing the same sort of challenges as I was but then meeting other young leaders who so then there'd be like two of us in the room or there'd be at some bigger events would be three or four um there just we recognized that there needed to be some space for just younger people to come together so whether you were whether you're trying to pick an age range was really difficult is when when is the cut off of you being young so we picked 40 because that seemed oh, like it, it certainly gave me at least <laughs> another 11 years to get to get to there um You'll know if you've achieved your yeah, strategic yeah, exactly. ties with a strategic plan. <laughs> exactly. Um, but so we, we picked under 40, and but also sort of recognising that some some people that might have their first chief executive jobs are sort of also young leaders in a way because they're new to that leadership role. Um, so hopefully that will give a space for people to come together and discuss. So one of the things that I've talked about before is imposter syndrome, um, and that feeling like you're not, you don't belong in this space. And I think that has happened at some of these events where it's been a lot more older people in the room. Um, and then you're just sort of working out what are people thinking that you're in the room and it's very strange. So that's a challenge for young people. And just being able to be a peer support network for each other Um because we're all going through the same challenges, but each of us brings a different perspective to how they got to being a chief executive. And that's quite useful as well to learn and from other people. I mean, ultimately, some of now my most trusted confidants are older chief executives who have been in their jobs for years, but who are willing to take out some of their valuable time and just sitting and having breakfast yeah. and chatting about some of these issues. So because some, someone did tweet me to say that they were really offended that we were creating a space for young leaders because it was really ageist, which I don't agree with at all. But I think where people are willing to, to give up some of their time to help people that are new into these roles is important. But also you, need, you do need a bit of a peer network that is people like you. That's Relevant not, yeah. experience, isn't it? How can people get involved in it? Because we're sort of running a lot of these smaller groups, so there's a Women's Leaders Network and the Young Leaders Network, I think, is the, the sort of second to finally launch. People can just get involved by coming online or tweeting me. Tweeting mm. me is probably the best way. I guess a little bit leading on from that in terms of being a young charity mm. chief exec, I wanted to ask a question about how you how you feel you are received sometimes. Mm. And I guess partly being younger no. than the majority of chief execs, partly your journey into it. And I'm interested about how Nancy overlaps into your world and how that affects people's perceptions. Yeah, I think that's, that's interesting. I make a point of saying, of introducing myself as the chief executive of HV Scotland um, because I think some people wouldn't assume that and some people do get surprised when I say that and I think that is a perception because I'm so young. I think 
what benefits me like physically is that I'm a very big presence in a room. So it's not as much of a shock to people. <laughs> um, and so I think that works out for me in my favour and that people do take me a bit more seriously and I'm very confident. But that confidence comes from doing drag for 10 years because I wouldn't consider myself as very confident. Even to this day, I don't like going into a bar that I've never been in before on my own. So if I'm meeting someone, I need to make sure that they're already there before I'll go in. Like, it's really bizarre, but the confidence of me not liking to go into a space I've never been in before and being really nervous about that is is something that I still deal with to this day. But being able to speak in public and speak at meetings and be convincing in arguments comes from literally being on stage seven nights a week in a wig and a dress and dealing with the worst of society when they're drunk and shouting at you abuse and all of that stuff. Like, that's what... I think has allowed me to speed up that journey in a professional sense as well. Like, yeah. I know people that will go to public speaking courses or, you know, all of these different... <laughs> Here's the alternative option. Yeah, exactly. Just be a drag queen for 10 years. <laughs> Having a platform with drag to be a bit political as well, yeah. it was helpful. You know, I never did drag to be, make a big statement or anything. It has evolved. When I started doing drag, I did it for the money because I was DJing in a pub in Edinburgh and then they had this drag idol competition and they didn't have many people sign up, so they asked all the staff to do it. It's so amazing <laughs> how things have just presented themselves. Yeah. And But then they, were, then they said that they'd pay me double what I got paid if I did it in drag, if I DJed in drag on a Tuesday night in Edinburgh. No, I know. And I was like, oh, that's easy. And that was how it happened. And then it just snowballed from there. And then, I mean, I was had a residency at the Admiral Duncan in London for three years. And now I'm doing my first full run at the Edinburgh Fringe. Yeah, so, amazing. So, yes. When I, got, when I took the job as chief executive, actually, the better story was when I was in London doing drag full time, I'd been approached to do some other to apply for some other jobs. And it was mainly because when the SNP got so many MPs, a lot of the public affairs agencies down in London didn't have any SNP people in it. So there was loads of recruiters that were coming about looking for SNP people that were ready for jobs. And I was remember sat down with a chief executive of one of the biggest public affairs organisation companies, and they had a printout of the Daily Record story about me quitting politics to do drag. And he basically said, how will my clients react when they Google your name and that's what comes up? And I knew when he said that, that I was never getting that job. But, you know, drag's never been something that held me back in any, any other way. Like, yeah. that was the first time that drag sort of didn't get me a job and it was a bunch of Tories, so I'm not that bothered. But um, <laughs> that's the first time that it was a barrier because actually I remember one of my favourite Scottish Tories, Mary Scanlon, when I left to move to London, she paraded me up the Scottish Conservative uh, corridor in the Scottish Parliament to introduce me to everyone to say what an amazing drag queen I was. <laughs> and then I'd host the SNP's conference karaoke and all of these yeah. things that I did that sort of blended my work and professional yeah. life with drag 
so it never been a barrier, but has then presented all these opportunities that mean I'm a more confident person than I probably would have been if I didn't. Yeah. So drag in relation to your, or its influence on mm. your leadership style. I listened to this podcast called Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat with Philippa Grange, who was something like head of culture for the England team when yeah. Gareth Southgate was, was the manager. manager. Yeah. yeah. One of the things that she said was the importance of downtime to not be performing. Mm. And I find it really fascinating that you have this important sort of high profile job and then your downtime is performing. Mm. How does that work for you? Yeah, I remember when I took over as chief executive, I thought that I would take a big step back from drag actually. And I did have like a couple of gigs that I was doing regularly. And then when I took over as chief executive, I stopped them and, and wanted to concentrate on the new job. And actually quite quickly realised that that part of me was really important also just because it got got you away from thinking about work and it was that downtime from work but also as another work. I think because I always did, well not always but I mostly did drag when I enjoyed it and I had fun doing it, it meant that that was an escapism thing for me. Um, like when I stopped doing drag when I moved back from London, I was kind of a bit done with it because I was doing it quite as a job job. Yeah. And now that I do it when I want to and when I'm enjoying it, then that's really important as well because the fact I don't have to do it makes it more enjoyable. So it's also allowed me to be a bit more creative. So I wrote my new show, Nancy Clench Agony Ant, randomly when I've never really written a show before and now I'm taking that on tour and doing it at the Fringe for the whole month. Mm. So it has allowed for that creativity and because I can have some time away from drag as well, I can do things a, a bit differently than what I was just churning out the same nonsense every week on stage. Yeah. I find it really intriguing when we were talking about imposter syndrome and you said you don't like to walk in, to, mm. in a bar on your own if, if you don't know your friend or whoever is there. Yeah but you will get on stage in drag in front of a Pax Comedy Club. That's interesting, isn't it? Yes. I think that I... And I've, I've experienced this in that if I go to a venue and I'm getting ready there, walking into the venue is very daunting if I've got my suitcase with me. If I'm walking into the venue in drag, I can walk in fine mm. and it is that almost mask that means you can one get away with being loud and obnoxious if you needed to be it's that sort of faking it as well and I would say I fake it a lot in the confidence that I portray in work and drags allowed me to do that and finesse how I can fake it there's a transition in the process of getting into drag where it's very hard to put into words, but you feel that sort of change. Mm. And it's it's weird because I went, I had a foot injury and I went through a period of wearing trainers because I couldn't wear heels. And it was almost like my body had to come to terms with the fact that I wouldn't be putting on heels and changed when that change happened. Mm. So, so a lot of the time it would be when I'm putting heels on. Putting heels on would make me stand a bit straighter and that was sort of when you felt the change, but... 
more recently it's like when you put the lipstick on and that's you like sort of mm. sort of ready um so yeah it's very interesting i've never been one to sort of theorize it all but it certainly makes for interesting conversation i think yeah so your new show, or the show that you're taking to London this mm-hmm. week, yep. and then at Edinburgh Fringe, Nancy Clench, Agony Ant. Yep. I have Googled some of the best Dear Deirdre <laughs> Agony Ant questions, <laughs> and I wanted to pose a couple to you to see how Nancy might respond. Yep. So this one's very brief. He left me in bed to chase Pokemon. How do you deal with that? Oh, you just got to dump them. Like, that's just insane. Grown people shouldn't be out playing Pokemon. That's definitely what Nancy would say. <laughs> that's a really good one. I wish she'd been asked that. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll add that into my show. <laughs> this, is a great, this is a great webpage. But this one's slightly longer. My boyfriend has admitted to me that he kicked a seagull to death after it stole a sandwich out of his hand. I've tried talking to him about it, but he's adamant that the seagull deserved it. How can I get past this? You know, if it was Nancy that was answering this question, then it probably wouldn't be the answer that most people would expect. But I probably would tell her to get over it. Um, I mean, in reality, nobody should be kicking animals to death, but the fact that she's written into someone for an answer is, is bizarre. <laughs> He he's adamant that the seagull deserved the seagull it. Seagull deserved a kicking to death. It's so yeah. bizarre what people <laughs> get up to. Nancy has a lot of celebrity friends, so Barack Obama follows me on Twitter. She's close and personal friends with Delta Goodrum, an Australian singer. Yeah. Um, so there's a lot of um, those anecdotes of of life and how. Um, but Nancy's never kicked an animal to death, so. Cool. Well, is there a book, film or ethos that has inspired your work? Do you know, I think going down that sort of confidence thing, one of the films that I most enjoy is a film, it's a HBO film called Game Change, and it's with Julianne Moore, and she plays Sarah Palin in the election as the running mate Mm -hmm. for John McCain. It's an incredible movie and you can never look at Julianne Moore again the same way twice because she just looks like Sarah Palin. But there is someone that fakes it till she makes it. It's the story of the behind the scenes of that election and how Sarah Palin rose to be famous and was almost what won the election. And it was that they played to her strengths, that her her advisors played to her strengths and that rather than... teaching her about foreign policy, they'd give her a sentence to say, and she would just say the sentence. Mm. And I think even, not so much that I'm giving a sentence, I'm giving a sentence to read out, but that um, playing to your strengths thing is what then, during that election, made her so likeable and relatable to an American population. Mm. Because even though it's about a politician that I wouldn't necessarily agree with, you can, you can see she's more relatable than most politicians yeah. because she was a soccer mum, like, that was her. Yeah. yeah. I need to think about a better answer for that one in future because <laughs> I, don't, I don't read and I don't watch many films, but I do enjoy that movie, so... Yeah, it's a good recommendation. I've at least it made it fit into the question. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. It was a strong theme throughout. Thank you very much Thank for you. joining me. I've really enjoyed it. Thanks. 
My key learnings from the chat are as follows. Firstly, Nathan's reflection that the organisation didn't need to become bigger or better at certain things, but that collaboration is key to success is really important for us all to keep in mind, especially in this current crisis and beyond where social need is greater and competition for funding will be at an all-time high. Secondly, I liked Nathan's chat about normalising HIV in Scotland by putting faces against the issue wherever possible. That this approach was inspired by somebody called Panty Bliss is just an added bonus for me. And finally, the importance and value on Nathan's work of having a creative outlet came through really strongly. Perhaps it's time to take a look at what your outlet or downtime is and make sure that you are making time for it. Thanks for listening. Until next time, take care of yourself. Stay in and stay safe.